0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Second Samuel 6. It's kind of hard to say. 2 Samuel 6. And uh, let me remind you of where we are, uh, because it's been a while. You've had a lot of carbs since then. Uh, your brain's probably feeling a little sluggish. But uh, if, you, if you remember, we're studying the life of David together. And King David dominates the pages of your Bible Uh, If you remember uh, when we introduced this series, I told you that there is more written about the life of David in your Bible than any other ancient figure. It's actually the largest biography that we have of any ancient figure. We know about David's childhood, his rise to power. Uh, We know his prayers. Uh, We know the songs that he wrote. We know about his friendships, his successes, his sins. We know so much about his life, Um, and this morning, we are going to look at his worship. We're gonna look at what I see as one of the best moments in his life when he leads his people in worship. Uh, Say whatever you will about David, uh, you have to at least acknowledge that his worship services were not boring. Uh, Weeks ago, we looked at David's first worship service he ever led, And it ended with someone dying. It ended with Uzzah reaching out, touching the ark, and being immediately struck dead. Now we get to uh, look at David's second worship service he ever led. And this one's going to have lots of uh, animals being killed. It's going to have David stripping down half naked and dancing around like a madman. And it's going to end with him handing out aphrodisiacs to people and telling them to go home. Uh, So David was not Presbyterian in his worship. (laughs) At all, uh, and so uh, we, you know, depending on the context you come from, a church you grew up in, this, this might be a stretch or a struggle for you as we look at the life of David and how he worshipped. But once again, I think this is David at his best. Uh, and so, if you would read with me, Second Samuel, chapter six. Actually, let me I forgot my worship guide. Beginning in verse eleven. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who had borne the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Father, we pray that you would honor the very reading of your word. That through your spirit, you would use these words to wake up sleepy hearts and minds. To captivate our attention and draw us to you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would make us look more like Jesus in this place. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So before we begin actually digging into this text, I want to ask a question. The question is this. What use is God's holiness to you? What use is God's holiness to you? Uh, Perhaps another way you could phrase this question is this. How do you benefit from God's holiness? Um, I asked my daughters this question the other night at dinner table. Uh, It's one of the many advantages of being a pastor's kid. Uh, you get asked questions like this, and uh, after they groaned for a while, we, we then did have a good discussion, but they struggled. They, they struggled to give an answer to that. Uh, perhaps you're struggling to find an answer to that question as well. Uh, what, what benefit is there in, in, in worshiping a holy God? It's easy for us, and when we were discussing this at the dinner table, it was easy for us to find other attributes of God that benefit us. For instance, God's mighty power, it can benefit us because it can make it rain. It can bring healing into our lives. It can uh, get us out of a jam that we find ourselves in. God's wisdom is of great use to us because it can guide us the right way to go. It can show us dangers in life to avoid. It can reveal to us the most beneficial thing that we should be doing. His mercy is wonderful because it's by his mercy that he forgives us of our sins. And of course, we love his kindness to us because it means that he showers us with his affection and with his love. We love to ascribe to God his faithfulness because this means that no matter how many times uh, we sin, no matter how many times we quit on him, he will always be faithful to us. But what can we say about his holiness? What benefit is there? What Do you think Uzzah had any benefit to God's holiness when he reached out and touched the ark and was struck dead? How did God's holiness benefit Uzzah then? It was of no use to him at all. And yet we sing of God's holiness in almost every song, don't we? I mean, we just sang it. The, the, the end of the chorus was, holy, holy is the Lord. And we just kept singing that over and over. Almost It seems like almost every Christian song we sing loves to ascribe holiness to God. And indeed, it actually is going to be the anthem for all of eternity. Uh, When you read through the book of Revelation, you come to chapter 4, you find these creatures that are surrounding the throne, and they're calling back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Then the creatures would respond back, yes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they would say that, ascribing to God holiness over and over and over again for all of eternity. Be honest. How many of you, when you think of that, you just think that is pure misery? I mean, to sing the same song over and over for all of eternity, that's heaven count me out. Uh, So my generation, uh, the praise song that we contributed probably more than any other uh, came from Delirious. It was called, I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, that song just swept across all the churches. Everybody's singing of his love forever. And forever, and you remember that chorus, it was just nothing, but I could sing every love forever. I could sing every love forever. And I'm like, we are going for it. I mean, that's like a goal that we're going to sing this song forever. And, and, and I would check out, I, I began to detest that song and it was only three chords long to make it even worse. Is that eternity? Is that what we have to look forward to singing the same chorus over and over and over? Sounds like drudgery, not joy. If the story of David worshiping before the ark, if it had just ended with Uzzah's death, then I would agree that worship is pure drudgery. We would worship a God not because we love him, but because we fear him. We sing before God because we feel we have to. After all, we don't want that God to be angry with us. I mean, we've seen what happens when God gets angry with us, and so we have to do our little song and dance before him just to try to appease him. And perhaps this is how some of you view worship. Now, now you don't like it that you feel that way. You try not to feel that way, but, but actually that might be exactly how you feel is that you have to do these things in order to somehow please God for him to not be angry with you. But if you're really honest, worship is Pure misery at times. Now, the only joy you ever really get from worship is when you just happen to like the tune. And, and you like the tune, and, and then you can actually have a little bit of joy because in that moment, all you're thinking about is the music, and you're not thinking about God. So your joy comes from being distracted from thinking about the holiness of God, not actually thinking about who he is. Well, thankfully, the, the story of the ark coming in to Jerusalem doesn't end with the death of Uzzah, and David wondered how can the presence of a holy God ever come to me? Uh, we get this story here. After Uzzah was killed, David told, David told the people to put the ark uh, in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. How would you like to be that guy? I mean, I picture poor Obed-Edom. He's just in his house, minding his own business, maybe looking out at the procession going by, sees the ark, sees the oxen stumble, a reach out, gets struck immediately dead. Everybody's quiet. Then they begin to panic. Nobody knows what to do. And then he sees, sees King David, like in a nightmare, pointing at him. <laughs> Take the ark and put it in that guy's house. there's no way he wanted the ark to come to his house. Uh, But he's a Gittite. He's a foreigner. He doesn't really have a choice. Likely, you know, you could hold the threat of deportation over him if he doesn't comply. And so they take the ark to him. Days passed, and then weeks passed, and then months passed, and he didn't die. Not only did he not die, but... He was blessed. He and his entire household was blessed. This was completely unexpected because the best way to think of the ark at this point is they thought of it as being radioactive. The closer you got in proximity to the ark, the more likely you were to die. But now they put that radioactive element there in that house and people aren't dying. They're thriving. God's blessing has come through his presence there. When this unexpected thing happens and David hears about it, how God's blessing has come upon those who had the ark, his view of worship is transformed. Uh, Now, I've got to be careful here because David doesn't understand everything perfectly, and we'll see this in the weeks ahead. Um, He's still seeing things through a glass, looking glass dimly, as, as Paul would say, but we do know this he finally comes to understand that being in God's presence, his holy presence, is not a death sentence. But being in his presence, there can actually be joy, blessing. Um, God's holiness was no longer something you had to run away from in fear, but was actually something you could run towards in joy. This is transformative to David. It's later going to inspire him to write one of my favorite psalms, which is Psalm 16, in which he says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. He doesn't say in thy presence is fullness of fear. But in thy presence is fullness of joy. Now, David realizes he needs to do a few things differently in order to bring the ark into Jerusalem. He needs to repent of the way they tried to carry it before, which was against God's design. And then he also realizes this, Israel in this moment needs me to be more than a king. They need me to be both a king and a priest. Here, this is a pivotal moment in Israel's history, and it's one we're going to look at a lot more two weeks from now, um, when we look at Psalm 110 together, as David writes about the king-priest. But that is what David comes to realization that the people need here. Both a king and a priest. They need someone who could go and make atonement for their sins. And to lead them into the presence of God. And so this is why we read in verses 13 and 14 that David, he puts on this thing called an ephod. Or you could call it an ephod or ephod. ephod. Uh, This was what the high priest wore. This is the clothing of the high priest. And so he, he wears this, and then notice that he is the one who is making the sacrifices. This is that he is making the sacrifices, and he's leading his people into worship. So he becomes both the people's king, and he becomes their priest here. And in doing so, he points us to the greater David to come, the son of David, Jesus, who will be both priest and king. Of course, Jesus is absolutely the greater David. Uh, David was a sinner who had to make all of these sacrifices. Every six steps, he's making sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people and for his own sins. But Jesus, well, he was the perfect sinless priest. He didn't need to make atonement for his own sins, but he didn't make atonement for our sins, but he didn't have to repeatedly make sacrifices because he was the perfect sacrifice himself. And he made the once and for all sacrifice for us. So David here, at his best, he's, he's pointing us forward, though, to Jesus. And we'll look more at that in a couple of weeks. This transformation that we see in David, this moving from fear to moving to joy when experiencing God's holiness, um, is not just seen here. We actually see this several places in Scripture. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is in the New Testament, and we see this in the life of the apostle Peter. Uh, and so I want us to look at when, we, when Peter first met Jesus and then his last conversation with Jesus. Uh, when Peter first met Jesus, you read about it in Luke chapter 5, Peter's in the boat fishing, not catching any fish. It's a common theme in Peter's life. And so he's not catching any fish. Jesus is in the boat with him. And Jesus says, well, why don't you cast your nets over there? He's like, fine. So he throws his nets over there. Catches more fish than he could possibly pull in. And then he looks at the Jesus. Jesus who has just displayed his power and his holiness. And he responds by saying, depart from me. Depart from me for I am a sinner. So when Jesus displays his holiness and his power, the only thought Peter has is, I got to get as far away from this man as possible. Now go to the last encounter Peter has with Jesus. Once again, he's in a boat, fishing, not catching anything. This time Jesus is in the boat with him. He's out on the shore and Jesus calls out to him and says, Hey, why don't you cast your nets out on the other side? Peter's like, fine, throws his nets out there. And once again, it's more fish than he could possibly haul in. So it's almost the exact same story that we have in scripture here. But this time, a completely different reaction in Peter. Instead of saying, depart from me, for for I am a sinful man, Peter jumps into the water fully clothed, and he swims as fast as he possibly can to get to Jesus the power and the holiness of Jesus attracts him this time instead of repels him. What's the difference? Is it because Peter suddenly got his life together? Peter finally turned his life around, you know, turned over a new leaf. It's actually quite the opposite. Peter had just committed the worst sin he will ever commit. He denied knowing Jesus three times that happened right before this. It's not that he got his life together. What happened is that Jesus died and rose again. The gospel happened. And in that moment, now when he sees the power and the holiness of Jesus, he knows that God used his power and his holiness, dying and rising again to deal with his sin forever. And now the holiness of God becomes infinitely beautiful to him. He can't get enough of the holiness of God. He knows he can approach the holiness of God and receive blessing and not curse, and so it makes him do crazy things, like jump into the water, fully clothed, swim as fast as he can to Him, and it makes David do crazy things, like dance, like half naked, like a fool. But the holiness of God becomes attractive to us, all because of the gospel. The thing we once feared now becomes beautiful. You guys know I, I love um, being in the mountains. Um, I, I love to, to go out west, drag my family on a long hike. Uh, you know, the, the first few miles, they do it willingly. Uh, but, but, you know, we go for a while and then we always come to some kind of scenic overlook, some great destination point, which makes it all worthwhile. And we get there, and as we're looking out at these gorgeous mountains, I always do this. Can't help it. You would do the same thing if you had others with you. You're there looking at this, and you just go, would you look at that? I mean, just look at that. It's gorgeous. I mean, they are looking at it. I don't have to tell them to look at it. And I'm like, it's beautiful, isn't it? They're like, they know It's beautiful. But why am I doing that? Why am I telling them to look at what they're already looking at? Why am I telling them that something is beautiful that they already know is beautiful? And I'm compelled to keep saying it. Would you just look at that? It's not really anything to do with them. I was created to do this. The, the verbal expression of the glory and the beauty I see before me, it fulfills my joy. I can't experience the joy unless I say it. That is glorious. And then if I could get other people to join with me in that chorus, it becomes even more glorious and I receive even more joy. That's worship. You were created to celebrate greatness. That's what we see when we come to Revelation 4 and it's those creatures calling back and forth. You know, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Would you look at that? And they're like, they're looking at it and they're like, yeah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Look at that. Holy, holy. Now they're doing this for thousands and thousands of years. They keep telling each other, would you just look at that? It's gorgeous, it's beautiful, the holiness of God. And you know what? They never get bored. I mean, never at one point do you think, well, you know, you actually have been telling me to look at that for the last thousand years. I have been. I agree with you. It's beautiful, but can we move on? You don't find that. And when you read that little snapshot there of them calling back and forth and never getting tired of that, what that is telling you is that is how glorious it is to behold Christ. You never stop wanting to say, would you just look at him? He is beautiful and it completes your joy. For all of eternity. These things are just beginning to to press in on David. We're the beginning stages of this. But his worship is being transformed here, and all of Israel's worship is being transformed with him. And I'm not exaggerating in this. There is a fundamental shift in how Israel sees worship after this. Uh, Up to this point, uh, the Israelites. Uh, their worship, it revolved mostly around sacrifices. To be a priest was synonymous with being a butcher. That's all you did. Sacrifice animals, sacrifice like over and over and over. That's all you did. But from this point forward, music becomes the dominant form of worship for all of Israel. It's not the only form of worship, but it becomes the dominant form of worship for Israel. Uh, This story is also told in 1 Chronicles 15, and it tells us that David, for the very first time, he gives the priest some new functions. He appoints some of the priests and some of the leaders to be full-time musicians and full-time singers. Now that the Lord has um, revealed himself in the beauty of his holiness, the blessings of his holiness. And not just the fear of his holiness, now songs need to be written. Now we need to sing about such beauty. And apparently not just sing, but there also needs to be some dancing. As, as the choir moves forward and there's all this musing, there's all this singing, David starts leaping and dancing with all his might before the Lord. Think about that. David is nowhere else described as like fighting with all his might, but he is described as dancing with all of his might. Dances with all his might before the Lord. Uh, The Hebrew word for dance is the same word that's used to describe a tempest. It means to whirl. It means to spin. Uh, It's it's, it's a crazy dance. Whirling, spinning, jumping. Uh, In other words, when you think of David dancing here, do not picture me at prom. (laughs) Not at all. You know, uh, Lauren and I, we, we dated all through high school, so we went to every dance together. And we have the pictures to prove it. Uh, my girls hate hearing me say this, but I always mention, you know, Lauren had more fabric on just one of her dresses than five or six of the prom dresses now combined. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a different day back then. Um, but at every one of these dances, I would get uh, what Lauren would call dance fever. And that was not like me loving to dance. I literally would get sick and I would spike a temperature. I would get a fever. I hated dancing so much. Uh, I loved more, Lauren more than I hated dancing though. And so I'd get out there and I would at least, you know, I'd do the Frankenstein dance. That was it. <laughs> All night long, Frankenstein. So for me to like even imagine... This, like, yeah, I mean, getting up in front of a mass group of people and doing that, like, yeah, it's it is hard for me to imagine, uh, let alone me think like I could ever do that. This whirling and this twirling half naked. I mean, come on. <laughs> and let's be honest, it, it doesn't seem very reverent, does it? It can rub us a little bit the wrong way. I mean, what do you think of when you think of the holiness of God and worshiping in reverence before the holiness of God? Aren't you supposed to worship in reverence before the holiness of God? When I think of worshiping the holy God in reverence before my, I think of like sitting quietly in a pew, speaking in hushed tones, maybe saying things like, yeah, we should probably say the Heidelberg Catechism together softly. Like, hush, like it's just we gotta be reverent. I, I, don't, I don't think of this dancing with all of one's might as reverence. And it's because somewhere along the line my wires got crossed and I made a critical mistake. I, I came to associate reverence with being reserved. That to be reverent means you must be reserved. But that's not in the Bible. Never. Never are we to be reserved in our worship. We're always to be reverent, which means like we're mindful of of the holiness of God. We're always to be reverent, but we're never to be reserved. We are to worship God with all of our heart, all of our soul and strength, and not just in our song, but in our finances, in our time, in our energy. Worship all of life. We're to give him everything. David here dances with all his might. And if you're one of those people who thinks, I mean, I I hear you, but it's just not me. I mean, that is not me. Maybe it's not you. Maybe you're the one person who can go to a football game and you can see your team come from behind Score at the last second, kick a field goal to win the game. And as everyone is going ballistic around you, you are quietly sitting there going, amen. <laughs> I just want to think on that and just the perfection of that. Mm. That was good. Perhaps that's you. I don't want to discount that. Maybe that's you, but, but I doubt it. Likely, if that happens to you, this happens. And you didn't even think about it. Your hands went up and you said, yes, yes. Along with everyone else. You know what yes is? It's just the Hebrew amen. You're going, amen, yes. And you didn't even think about it. Because in that moment, you know what was happening? You were doing what you were created to do. Celebrate greatness. That's what you were made to. That's worship. And if you are struggling with your worship here in this place, it's not because you need to get better mechanics. You know, I need to learn the right, you know, way to dance or sing. Or, and that's not it. You're struggling with the greatness of God. Because the moment the greatness of God hits you, you cannot help but celebrate that. That is what we see here with David. We were made to celebrate the greatness of God. Now, some of you might be like McCall, though, and you look at her' like, Ugh. no. McCall, she, she's watching from her window, and we read that she despises David in her heart. Now, it's understandable based on the way David has treated her. We saw that a few weeks ago. I mean, She had remarried, been remarried for like eight, nine years at least, and he just rips her from her husband and takes her back. I mean, it's understandable that she would struggle with this. But actually, when you read their conversation, she wasn't struggling with understanding David's heart in this. That wasn't it. She was questioning his appearance. She was embarrassed in how he made her look, how he looked. And so uh, when David comes home, she just lets him have it. This is actually the only conversation we have between the two. And here we get to see a happy married couple. It's just pure bliss. So this is what we read in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today, Before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Uh, Now, apparently, this this ephod uh, was a little short. And so, as David is doing all of his whirling and twirling, people are catching glimpses of some things here. It might have been a little revealing. And, and McCall's just, she's mortified at this. You know, she was raised as a proper princess, and we don't act like this. You know, my dad Saul certainly never acted like this. Well, David maybe lacked a little judgment here in how he wore this. Maybe. But his heart's in the right place. And so, so he responds to her in verse 21. He, he says to McCall, it was before the Lord I was dancing. This is before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. We'll end here. Uh, David's response teaches us a couple of things about worship. First, his worship is rooted And grace, it springs forth from an understanding of grace. David tells McCall that he was dancing before the Lord who chose him. Over and over again, he says, who chose me. David did not come to this position of blessing and privilege because of God's or because of his work, but because of God's. David did not earn this. He did not fight for this. He did not make better decisions than others that resulted in this. He's not more moral than other people, more righteous than other people. No, God, out of sheer grace, chose David and blessed him and put him in this position. And when David thinks of the grace of God on his life, it just fills him with joy. Second thing we see here is that David's Worship made him a lighter person. He's a lighter person. Uh, When David says that he will become even more contemptible, or I had the New American Standard growing up and it was the word undignified. Uh, He will make himself more contemptible than this. That word contemptible is the opposite of the word glory. Um, The word glory in Hebrew means heavy. Heavy it's something of substance it's heavy it's as real as it gets it's glorious to be contemptible here is the opposite of that it's not heavy it's light david here he says that he's going to make himself even lighter than this he's not carrying with him the heavy burden of trying to present himself as glorious he doesn't care what others think about him. He's free. I mean, he's truly free to just be in the presence of God and to, to enjoy him. He's not dancing to impress you. He's not dancing to impress himself. He's dancing before the Lord. He doesn't care what you think about him. He doesn't even care what he thinks about himself. He's truly light and free in this moment. Wouldn't you love to have such lightness and freeness, freedom in your life? This story is an invitation to you to, to have that. The, the more you come to know Jesus, the more you come to understand his love for you, his grace for you, that through his death and his res- resurrection, he now gives you new life, the more and more you become lighter, not burned down by the anxieties of this world, not burned down by your sin, not burned down by people's expectations of you or having to try to impress them. The gospel liberates you from those things and you become light and joyful in the presence of God. Wouldn't you love to live that way? Let me pray these things for you. Father, I pray for those who have been carrying heavy weights for so long. Free them of that. I pray that you would make them light and joyful in your presence. There is a great invitation here. We do not have to fear your holiness because, Jesus, you have dealt with our sins. You've given us new life. And now when we look at you and your holiness, we are attracted by an indescribable beauty. May we come and be joyful in your presence. Would you make that so in our church? And We pray this in the sweet name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.